Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter, the 28th to the 36th verse. It's the story of the transfiguration of the Lord. <clears throat> Whether that took place on Mount Hermon, um, it, because of that connection with Caesarea Philippi, or whether it took place on Mount Tabor, there's no way really to determine which of those, but we do know that it was a high mountain. And certainly today in Israel, if you go to the church of the, of the uh, transfiguration, it is a very high mountain and a very difficult ascent. Um, and uh, so it was, it was not something that, that they did quickly, walking to the top of that mountain. So Jesus took with him now Peter, James, and John. These are the three who go with him. Um, and they, they go with him um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're with him here. They're with him when he cures um, the centurion's uh, daughter. Um, and so they seem to be of uh, the three out of the twelve who are closest to the Lord and whom he invests his most time with and his most intimate moments with. Um, about his concerns, about what he's thinking, what he's doing. We know that uh, before this, uh, this story of the transfiguration, before that, that comes up, there is the, uh, the testimony of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ. And, uh, and although they don't really understand what they mean, they still seem to be tied up with the, uh, with the worldly expectations of who the Messiah is going to be, very much in line with most of the people of Israel. In fact, when this, when this is over, um, in Mark's Gospel, it tells them, <clears throat> you know, that they are not to understand what this means until the resurrection. And then we're told that they have no idea what the resurrection means. So they're still well into a process of being catechized, of being taught, and uh, this is a very powerful moment of uh, enlightenment for, for the three of them. For after the witness of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, then is when they go up the tall mountain to pray. <clears throat> and it's interesting here, Luke always emphasizes the times that Jesus cuts off by himself and prays. But now he's doing so after an arduous climb, and he's doing so with Peter, James, and John. <clears throat> so it is a special occasion that he includes them and draws them in, into his prayer with the Father. And then it says, as he prayed, the aspect of his face was changed, and his clothing became brilliant as lightning. And suddenly there were two men there talking to him, and they were Moses and Elijah appearing in glory. And they were speaking of his passing, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. So here now we have a strongly, this is what they call an eschatological scene. This is, a, this is a piercing glance, both into the present reality that is before them, but also in the culmination and the fulfillment of, uh, of what Israel hopes for and what Israel expects. 
for the Messiah now, whom Peter has identified as the Christos, and uh, and the the Messiah whom he has therefore identified, now reveals to them the depths of what of his messianic truth, of his messianic person. He himself is transfigured. And uh, the word they use is metamorpho, and the only time that that's used any other time in the in in the New Testament is in Paul, and uh, I think in Paul in 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 Romans, and uh, I'm not sure what the other reference is. It's in Corinthians, but I'm not sure exactly where that is. Um, but that he is uh, he it it means kind of a change, interior change, a change of heart. Paul uses it for a religious conversion. and uh, But it is what changes the inside of a person. And so here, Luke is using the word to show the change on the inside of the person as it appears then in reality and in truth. And so what they are saying, seeing is the glorified Lord. Um, his face has changed, his clothing is brilliant as lightning, and then all of a sudden Eli- um, Elijah and uh, Moses um, appear, and they're speaking with him of his passing, um, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. They're talking about, therefore, John uses the crucifixion as, as the, what he calls the glorification of the Lord. And so here the Lord is glorified to them, but he is discussing that final act of glorification, which is total surrender to the Father and uh, the willingness to let loose of his own life for the sake of the mission that the Father sent him on. So it's a great, a dramatic, it's a dramatic conversation. We, we have Elijah and we have um, a Moses because that means that Jesus is fulfilling all of the expectations of the Old Testament. For Moses is the law, Elijah is the representative of the prophets. And between the law and the prophets, the whole expectation of a Messiah grew and developed. And <clears throat> much of it through the promises of, uh, of the prophets. And certainly... Um, the, uh, the, the road there was the following of the law, that it was this following of the law <coughs> that brought the Israelites, <coughs> that brought the Israelites um, into a relationship with the Lord where he would then reveal to them deeply from time to time who he was and what his mission was. Also in the gospel before this, Jesus goes through this this eschatological statement where he says, um, some of you here will not die until the Son of Man returns. It's a problematic text because does that mean that uh, Jesus really expected the second coming himself to be, uh, to be imminent and, uh, and was sharing that with his disciples? Or did he mean that uh, that many there would come to know who he was and come, in other words, to grasp the meaning of the eschatological age? It's, uh, it's hard to tell, and certainly there was a whole group of scholars that broke off and, and went into Jesus basically being you know, convinced, uh, and the early church convinced, 
that um, that the second coming was imminent. We find that in Paul's second letter, the Thessalonians, when they are so convinced that it's immediate that they just sit down and wait and don't do anything. And Paul condemns them for that and says, until this happens, you have to get up and feed yourselves. You have to get up and make a living. Um, and if you don't, no one should help you out because, you know, you're misinterpreting what the Lord said and what the Lord intended. So it, it, it's... Um, it is a, a confusing time in, in the Gospels when we move through this. But we have to, I think that one of the important things is, is to understand that this eschatological nature of the Messiah has been in the Scriptures from the very beginning, when Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord and so forth, that it is a, it is a time of a coming of the Messiah, and in this, it's, this is almost like, in some ways, you could interpret this as just being a great gift to the disciples, because what they are going to face in the future with the with the terror of the passion of the Lord is um, is they're going to doubt, and they're going to be frightened, and they're going to flee, and uh, say it it all's falling apart. Nothing is happening the way we thought it would happen. Nothing is happening the way he said it would happen, and. Uh, and yet in the back of their life experience, there is this moment where they saw him glorified, where they saw him with Elijah and Moses, where they saw him as the fulfillment of the hopes and the expectations of ancient Israel, and where they saw him as the fulfillment of, the, of, uh, of God's promise to them that he would send someone to them. And uh, and that uh, when this time came, then they would be able to receive a fuller and a deeper understanding of the nature of their relationship with the living God. So all of this maybe it could be just kind of a moment of encouragement. The the early church accepted accepted this event um, as a uh, as a historical fact. In Second Peter, in the first chapter, Peter even talks about this event. And so it's something that is in their, on, on their minds. And, um, and it was something that they did have in their memory and back in their, in their recollection. And it just added maybe at the moment of the passion, it added to their confusion. How could we have seen this and yet this is what's happening? And they couldn't put those two pieces together. Eventually, of course, the resurrection puts the pieces together for them, that what they have seen is the post-resurrection Jesus. And, uh, <clears throat> and they have seen him in his role of reconciling the old covenant and the new, of bringing to fulfillment the old covenant and establishing the new covenant, and establishing it on the foundation of his apostles, and especially on the witness of Peter, which has just taken place. Um, in, in this, in this gospel. And so, in fact, as they're going up the mountain to pray after the confession of Peter. So there is a link between what Peter says and now what Peter sees. And that link is not something that he knows and not something he anticipated and not something he thought about. Um, it is a pure gift to them and a pure gift of the Lord. And it includes and explains so much that uh, the Messiah's role is not so much to be what the people wanted him to be, what the people uh, hoped he would become, a great king, a great general, and so on, whatever, um, ruling over vast kingdoms and uh, becoming more glorious than David and Solomon and all of this kind of thing. 
that, as a matter of fact, it was simply the fulfillment of the will of the Father, and it was the fulfillment of the hopes and the dreams of Israel. And, uh, and in so doing, then, he drags into the present both the past and the future. For in the past he brings up the prophets and the law. In the future he speaks of his glorification and especially what's, he's going, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And he speaks with that with the representatives of the old covenant, Moses and Elijah. So it's a profound moment. And it doesn't say that the apostles who were with him, who were in a sound sleep, it says the companions were heavy with sleep, but they kept awake. And, and saw him, and saw his glory, and the two men standing with him. As these words were leaving him, as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, so it is wonderful for us to be here. And then he proposes the three tents, marking like the, 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 uh, the Feast of Booths, the joyous occasion of the uh, deliverance, of God's deliverance. So <clears throat> what we see in here then is um, we, we can look at, there's, well, there's other ways too, and it is that what they caught a glimpse of was the reality that was always with them, but they just simply could not see with human eyes. They had to see only with the eyes of faith. Um, and certainly there is some truth to that also. But because what they saw was what was present with them the whole way, the promises and the life of ancient Israel, the Messiah himself who was the Son of God, um, the uh, the one who, the voice in the theophany at the end of this gospel story, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him, that they have, they have had the testimony to Jesus as the Son of God in the baptism of the Jordan, the big debates about whether John the Baptist had seen and heard that or not. But uh, here again, it indicated that the disciples did hear this, that this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Once the identity, once the whole purpose of the transfiguration had been accomplished, then Jesus is there alone as he was before it happened. And the disciples kept silence and at that time told no one what they had seen. Um, what, how would they explain that? How would they go about explaining that to their, to their confreres, to their, their fellow disciples? It was a personal experience, and they came to understand that. It was not, therefore, created from their, from their own want, need, or desire. It was an objective reality before them. But they knew that it was so far beyond their comprehension, what they were being taught and where they were being led, that they thought it best to be silent about it until after the resurrection. And that's when in Second Peter 1, um, Peter talks about the event publicly in his proclamation and his discussion of the kerygma. So the, the, the Feast of the Transfiguration brings something else up very important to us also. And that's this thing that we call realized eschatology. Eschatology is, is a study and an exploration of the last things and, and of what happens um, after the consummation of the world, what happens after the second coming of Christ. And so, but the gospel is sprinkled with reminders that that reality is still present among them. And that this is one of the more dramatic places where they break through that screen, they break through what Paul calls the, calls the glass darkly. 
and they see with great clarity and great amazement that the truth of who this Jesus is. I think, you know, sometimes we can, we can easily say, well, if the apostles were giving so much warning and they were given so much to, under, to uh, opportunities to grasp and to understand as they were, as they were doing that, um, that occasionally the Lord opened the window of light for them to re, re, re-strengthen, to uh, re, reconfirm their, uh, their belief in Jesus, their willingness to follow him, and so forth. But, but it isn't just the apostles grasping the meaning of the eschaton as something present. The eschaton is essentially the person of Jesus. And what they see in his eschatological dimension is when he is most actively um, a, re- a redeemer and a messianic character and proclaimer of the good news of the Lord. All of those things <clears throat> are present in him. John makes a big deal out of his, his presence to us. And certainly in the Catholic tradition, we have a deep sense of Christ's presence within the present age. We have certainly the phenomenon of the Eucharist, which is the presence of Christ in every age, in every place, in every time. And so, in a way, the Eucharist is an eschatological sacrament, an eschatological symbol, because in uniting us to Christ, it reveals to us our future, and it reveals to us Christ's desire for us to be one with him. And through this very highly symbolic um, and very human way, he presents himself to us in our daily lives through his Eucharistic gift to us but also in the miracles that he performs. Um, he's not doing that as a, as a local magician. He's doing that as the Son of God. He's doing that as the Messiah, as a sign of, uh, of the fact that he is restoring. His mission is to restore creation to, to what it was when it came forth from the hands of the, of the Father and the Son, and the Spirit, all of whom were the creators. Although John tells us it is, through, it is through the Word that everything comes to be. So Jesus is the vehicle of creation, and although it is a, a Trinitarian phenomenon. So they, they, they know that Jesus is the foundation of, of, of the reality of the world in which they lived, um, but there's, but they they aren't they shouldn't be faulted for being so completely human that they they're more comfortable with the ordinary everyday Jesus than they are with the uh, with the messianic Jesus revealed to them in the present age because in this they they are astounded they are frightened um, and uh, as they are in in so many different kinds of situations where they should have known better. For instance, having been fed with the store, with the the, the uh, witnessing of the miracles, and um, and and all this, the, the transfiguration, um, they have they have seen who the Messiah really is. They've seen who Jesus really is, and yet, being human as they are, they choose to choose that which is most comfortable and ordinary and familiar with them. And so they, teach, they accept him as a friend, as a teacher, as their master. 
And so here, breaking through the facade of, uh, of the ordinary and, and what, um, drilling deep into the mystery of who the Messiah is and of why he is among us and what he is here for and what he's going to do, that this becomes brilliantly um, conveyed to them in this vision that they have of the transfiguration of the Lord. So <clears throat> when we speak of, of, of the present eschatology, we speak simply, basically, of the presence of Jesus in the midst of the contemporary world, of Jesus' relationship to us in our hearts, of Jesus' miracles that he still performs, of his presence among us is the presence of the eschatological, the presence of the eschaton, because he is the end of all things. He is the destination. He is the event. Um, and the event that is eternal. And when, when we, we move in this direction, then this is simply a more graphic um, display of what Jesus is doing all along and what Jesus is saying to them all along. He often quotes the Old Covenant, and we know we have that beautiful scene in the Visitation where Elizabeth, as the Ark of the Old Covenant, encounters Mary, the Ark of the New, with a joy and excitement and peace and generosity and love. Um, that, that, is the, that is the way that the transition should take place from the, the people of the old to the people of the new. Unfortunately, historically, that isn't how it worked out. Um, many, many, many times, <clears throat> things that should work out differently don't. And so what happens is that we get kind of obliterated in, in our deeper convictions about God's presence. And in that, we begin to fall into the same realm as the apostles do. That when times get rough, um, people lose hope and they lose faith. Um, certainly the exodus, contemporary exodus from the church has a great deal to do with the terrible scandals that rage and beseech them and, and overtake the church today, not just the sex abuse scandal, but the scandal of, of, an, of unbelief, the scandal of apostasy within the church, the ones who are, are choosing, um, instead of choosing the, uh, the Lord Jesus as their model and their guide and their constant companion, they choose sometimes very, very distorted and very unpleasant companionship in life with events that drive people away and say, well, how can this be the church of God if these terrible things are going on? And, and that is reminiscent of the, uh, of the apostles at the Passion. How can, this, how can this be the Messiah when these terrible things are happening to him, when we're watching him scourged and we're watching him humiliated and we're watching him mocked and where the crowds are hollering, for instance, for a, for a fake revolutionary Messiah to be set free while Jesus himself, they say, crucify him, crucify him. Well, it's, it's the same thing. Jesus is failing them in their eyes. Jesus is a failure in their eyes. The moment of his arrest and, and his, his passion. Just like many people are saying today that the church has failed us. The church has failed our society, our modern world. Look at the terrible things that have happened in the world. The First and the Second World Wars. And, 
the uh, the establishment of, of communism and and now the the, the rapid anti Christianity that ravages Western Europe and even great parts of our own country, um, <clears throat> and we can say, oh, the church is failing, the church is falling apart, it has no future. What have I got myself tied to? And many simply turn and walk away, um, exactly as the apostles fled. Hopefully many like the apostles will come back, but that's up to them and that depends upon how their relationship with the Lord truly is. But Jesus is the eschatological age, and insofar as he's present to his apostles and present to others in the world, the eschaton is present. It's a realized eschatology. And, uh, and Jesus, of course, is the one to whom we are joined in order that we might, therefore, go into eternal life. I think that when we, there's, there's a lot more in this story as well. And, and it's interesting that, that Peter suggests that they build three tents there, and uh, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for the Lord. Um, because it means Peter is very much still in the Old Testament. He's still very much not yet crossed the line into the true disciple of the, of the Messiah, who has come to obey the Father, not to uh, win friends and influence people, and not to be, not to be terribly demonstrative about his what able to do, but that he himself is with them as companion, as friend. And so their salvation is among them as their friend. And their salvation is among them as the one who witnesses to the messianic mission of the Christ. None of them want that messianic mission to be what God has determined it's going to be. None of them wanted or expected that Jesus, no matter what he said, that Jesus would be um, betrayed and that he would be a source of embarrassment for them and that he would he would uh, leave them, and uh, none of that did they expect. They expected to be kind of to continue on in the goodness of their lives, and and um, and kind of eventually be very important people in this new following of the Messiah of Jesus of Nazareth. That isn't what happens. And they're shocked and they're horrified and they flee in the church and the, the, the God has, has uh, betrayed them. God has betrayed their trust. He has not kept his promise as they understood that promise. And yet this story of the transfiguration is an attempt to stabilize and to keep stable the disciples of the Lord. For three of them at least have seen him in his glory, and they have seen him pull together the threads of the law and the prophets, and they have heard him speak about what he's going to go through in Jerusalem. They have all the advantage, but the personal and existential experience is so phenomenally strong that, um, that they, they, can't, they can't integrate this, they can't put it together. And they have to wait until the after the resurrection in order to understand what this was all about in the first place. And maybe we too are somewhat skeptical at times, and maybe we too think, you know, I should just walk away. But then we might want to think of that other great line of St. Peter, but Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Um, for the world is a hostile place in many ways, and Satan does rule in the world in many ways. And Jesus is the deliverance. He is the, he is the pathway into eternity. We have, no, we have no option, no choice but to follow him if we hope somehow or other for eternal life and eternal happiness. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Thank you.